0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. I don't know if it's an encouragement or discouragement that we have fewer people at our annual meeting than we normally do our 9 o'clock service, Uh, but I hope that uh, what I'm about to say is of some edification uh, for it should be uh, rooted in God's Word. and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God and Heavenly Father, we pray that we would be reminded that we're ever walking in your ways. And even here at an annual parish meeting, you are here. Remind us of your presence. Remind us of your goodness and loving kindness. That more than just a formality, that this time would be a walking with you. And that our eyes might be open to the glorious grace that you supremely show in your Son, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the author of Hebrews, before he gets to Hebrews chapter 12, has just finished the Faith Hall of Fame, as so many call it. But the listing of the heroes of the faith often overshadows the point that he is trying to make. His point is not look at these Christian exemplars, but look at their faith, faith in the midst of despair, uncertainty immoral behavior, and every kind of difficulty. Their testimony is that the Christian experience is one that finds believers afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed. And so the author of Hebrews encourages us to keep going. But what does it mean to look at their faith? Let us understand faith rightly. Faith is not a virtue. It is a gift given from God. So when we talk about the great doctrine of justification in the Bible, we often talk about justification by faith. And that's true to an extent, but literally speaking, when the Bible talks about how we're made right before God... It says that we're justified by grace through faith. That it's God's grace intervening in our lives that takes hold of us, that enables us to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe on Him. Grace operates before we can operate any faith that is within us because it is by grace that God places faith in our hearts. Faith is a gift and we're called in God's Word to lay hold of it not to simply decide I love the verse from Rock of Ages which very few people sing anymore but Augustus Toplady writes foul I to the fountain fly wash me Savior or I die but when God plants His grace in our hearts We don't say, yeah, I'm going to decide for you. But when our eyes are open to who we are, but above all to who God is, we fly to the fountain. We run to Him. Because only in Him do we find our salvation and our all in all. And when God washes us, when our eyes are opened, we not only see ourselves rightly and God rightly, but we begin to see the world rightly. And that causes no short amount of awkwardness. As Paul has just told us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and the list that the author of Hebrews gives us, that when we turn to the Lord in faith, we should expect this thing called persecution. We should expect difficulty in our own lives. But as one of the old Puritans said, that if you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ, every trial that you experience in your life is experienced doubly. Because not only do you have to struggle through the trial itself, but you, all have, you also have to struggle with the question, does God really love me? But for a believer, yes, you experience the trial. But because of his grace and the faith that he's implanted in our hearts, We're assured of God's love through us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. It's always around us. This body of death of Jesus that we carry with us that is a reminder to us even a reality to us that Jesus might also be manifested in our bodies and so it's not that we ought to simply look at the faith of our forebears, but the object of their faith the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep on going as Hebrews encourages us not looking at ourselves or our circumstances as Peter did when he stepped out of that boat when Jesus called him out and the moment he took his eyes off Jesus and he saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. But we look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It is Jesus whom we set our eyes upon. And so when difficulty does come, and I'll be honest with you, last year was a terrible year for me. Uh, Never in ministry had I encountered such opposition. Now praise God, it wasn't from you. Maybe a few of you. But certainly people inside the life of the church, inside the life of our own denomination, who just didn't want to oppose me, but wanted to see me gone. And I underestimated the emotional impact that I would have on my life, but I read what Hebrews says here, and I think, but in the light of Calvary, in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's nothing. And that came through so strongly to me when I was at Beeson Divinity School for their December graduation and there I was with Jackie Mugisha and Sam Mugisha, the Bishop of Sheerah Diocese, that there's only one word and Lauren, my wife, uses it to describe his smile and that is sunshine. Just the joy that radiates from his face. And that was such an encouragement to me. But as the organ played and they began to sing for all the saints who from their labors rest and the the graduates came in and then came the faculty in their academic finery. And as I was sitting there trying to mind my own business all of a sudden one of the faculty members decided to drop their left shoulder and nudge me as as they went in. Not an Anglican but someone of another denomination. And then several people later, a Baptist preacher grabbed me by the arm and patted me on the shoulder and walked in. Two men that have no interest in Anglicanism per se, but they do have an interest in gospel ministry, and I have to believe that those two nudges were not from men, but from God for me. Nudging me to say, keep on going. Because the gospel is too important. And in light of Calvary, any present trouble that we experience is nothing. And in Jesus Christ, we're more than overcomers. I think it's interesting here that the author of Hebrews says that you've not even gotten to the point of resisting, to the point of shedding your own blood. I mean, do we realize that when we struggle with temptation and with trial, We're all so liable to give in, which means our struggle actually isn't that great. In that great tug of war that exists in our own hearts, eventually we just let go and capitulate. But who never let go? The Lord Jesus Christ, which means his struggle was greater than anything that we will ever know because he never gave in. And it cost him his life. But as we're exhorted to endure and keep on going, we would be right to ask, going on to what? To paraphrase the author of Hebrews, we are on our way to heaven to be with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that journey and the desire for its completion should consume all our lives. We're on our way to heaven and we want others to go with us as we continue to implement the results of our visioning process and allow its biblical principles to shape our life as a congregation, it has become become clear to me that eternal fellowship with our Heavenly Father is what it's all about. We're on our way to heaven, but we want others to come along with us as well. And so just by way of reminder, the hallmarks of Why we do what we do around here is because the Advent has a living, daring confidence in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Full stop. We're not into gimmicks. We're not into tricks. We're not into appropriating the ways of the world to entice people to come to this place. But we're here to do what the church has always done, which is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, because it is only in Him that we see lives transformed, which is why we also exist to proclaim the freeing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to make disciples wherever God has placed us. This is the evangelistic impulse. This is the impulse that we want to see one another grow up into the faith of Jesus Christ and to more and more know just how much He loves us, even while we know more and more our need of Him. Which is why we hold the gospel at the center, rooting our worship in the English Reformation, making it always accessible and hospitable. It's why we will communicate in ways that effectively enhance and further the ministry and purpose of the Advent. It's why we focus on the reconciling word and work of Jesus Christ as they propel us in the way we care for and live with one another. It's why we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ by engaging in His spiritual and material restoration of our city and the world. It is why we equip every member of the Advent or attempt to for the work of discipleship by creating and nurturing a culture that responds to the grace that we have received from Him. And it is why we're out to identify, develop, and equip leaders for full-time professional ministry in the Advent and beyond. This is our task. And what motivates us is a commitment to principles, not methods. It's not that we say, well, this is the way that we do it, this is the way we've always done it, and this is the way we're going to do it until Jesus comes back. No. It's we're committed to the foundational principle of who Jesus Christ and what he's come to do. And that principle is we lay all of our hopes and our fears and our ambitions and anything else that we might bring to the table in our ministry. If we root ourselves in that, that may very well mean that our methods change. So that in fact that the gospel is not veiled. And we've seen this worked out in our own ministry. Over the past year, we've seen numerical growth here at the Advent as we have done the past few years. Uh, I wish that we had a fuller account of our statistics uh, here in the green, I don't know what color, what color is that? Taupe? hope is so soothing. So if you look at that, but the statistics are completely incomplete because if you look at that, the number of members that we've had have decreased, but that has been almost entirely due to deactivation or someone who's inactive or somebody has been transferred into the church triumphant. But in fact, what you're not seeing is our average Sunday attendance going up. What you're not seeing are the number of children that are now filling our Sunday schools and the problem that we have in the nursery with space. You're not seeing the number of people who now feel confident in handling the Bible and sitting down with someone else and reading the Bible together and helping them understand what God is saying through it, and so on and so on. But even so, beyond seeing more people at church on a Sunday in a bigger budget, Are we as God's people prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within us? More than wanting to see people become a member of our congregation or to be with us on Sunday mornings, our greater desire ought to be for them to be on the way to heaven with us. And this happens by entering into a relationship with the living God, Jesus Christ. Are we at the Advent... So overwhelmed by the message of the gospel, God's saving love for us, that we are compelled by the Holy Spirit to share this news with others. It's easy in the South to be a sideline Christian, observing things from afar, leaving the church work to the clergy and other professionals, and it's routine in the life of many Churches. We believe but either lack the fire in our bones or feel ill-equipped to do that which God is calling us to do. But we're reminded by Paul in 1 Corinthians, do you know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And that's one of the strange phenomenon uh, of being a Christian. And I know that if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've experienced this in your life. And that is that you're speaking to someone who may be struggling through a difficulty. Or maybe you're getting ready in the morning and all of a sudden someone comes to mind and you feel a prompting to pick up the phone and call them. Or to go over to their house and sit with them. A prompting to share the gospel with them. A prompting to pray with them even if it's in the middle of the piggly wiggly this is a very special thing that's happening in your heart because it's actually God speaking to you it's remarkable because throughout the book of Acts what we find is that there no there's nothing that we can do to work it up and there's nothing that we can do to pray it down it's actually an act of God's mercy when he begins to speak to you in that way but here's the strange thing that we see in the book of Acts even though we can't work it up or pray it down we can suppress it. And how often do we suppress it? Where God actually speaks to our hearts to go visit with a dear brother or sister or to share faith with someone who is lost or to pray with someone there in the grocery store. And yet we tamp it down. One of the funniest experiences I had was with... Uh, a high-ranking official uh, in in the church, and as I was leaving, I said, "Would you pray for me?" And he said, "Yes, I'll pray for you." And then he got up and shook my hand and left. And what he thought I was saying was, "Will you pray for me later on?" But what was I asking? Will you pray for me right now? Because I was feeling God's tuck in my own heart and understanding my own need for prayer. If the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is within you, what is there to prevent us from making disciples of all nations, including Birmingham? Sure, we are afraid of affliction, perplexity, persecution, and being struck down at best, crushed, despairing, forsaken, and destroyed at worst. These are real fears, But when the gospel is planted in our hearts and we see our lives transformed by the Holy Spirit, we ought to be willing to risk it all that others might know. And the cost socially is very high. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century bishop of Liverpool said, one of the marks of godly righteousness is that people do see you as different now, well, not to steal from the brother's sermon this morning that Canon Smalley preached, but I think his illustration about showing up at a, in black tie at a white tie event actually illustrates the opposite of what God is saying. Or actually affirms what God is saying in an opposite way, rather. And that is, if you're a Christian, it feels like you're the guy in black tie showing up at the white tie event. People look at you differently. They interact with you differently. But as J.C. Ryle said later on, that people ought to look at us and see Christianity as something beautiful. Also providentially, Canon Smalley. I think Ken, uh, Craig has this ability to break into my computer because he's always stealing my stuff. Uh, but Penn Gillette, he uses this illustration, but I'm going to give it in full. Penn Gillette of the comic duo Penn and Teller. Is an avowed atheist, going so far as to be a part of programming that you can see on television every once in a while, and and it calls out organized religion and works against it. And in a video posting that he put up on the Internet, Penn talks about an audience member who gave him a Bible. And reflecting on this gift, Penn goes on to say, I've always said that that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward and atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who just say leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself how much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? I mean, if I believed beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. And so this year and beyond, it is my hope that we continue to hold a living, daring confidence in the grace of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that our faith would be no sideline religion as we exist to proclaim the freeing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples wherever God has placed us, because we keep going, not counting the cost but knowing that it all has been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, working and praying that others might join us on the way to heaven. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word and that we're called to keep on going. And Lord, it's so hard, but we pray that we would be reminded that the faith that we lay hold of is not something that we conjure up. And so, Lord, that you would increase our faith that we might lay hold of you. And Lord, even though our grip is so weak, we thank you, God, that your grip is so strong. Never let us go. Hold us and keep us as our good shepherd. And so, Lord, as your sheep, that we might be given over to have the courage to follow your voice in all that we say and do in this place and beyond. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.